Well, amen. It is great to have you with us, all the graduates from Numbers, and now for those of you joining us for the book of Philippians. And it's going to be an exciting book. And so often in the Old Testament, I've tried to tell you where the book is and where it's oriented within the Bible. I want to do the same thing today because I am so excited about what we're going to learn together over the next couple months together. You see, the, the New Testament is divided really into four sections. There's Jesus, then there's the church, then there's letters, then there's revelation. So Jesus, there's lots of pieces to Jesus' life covering the Gospels. Then there's the book of Acts, which is pretty much Jesus went up, Holy Spirit came down, and the people went out. And it's divided in half, Peter and Paul, uh, in each half, building church communities of Jesus' followers. Then there's a group of letters written to those Jesus communities to really encourage them and help them after all the disciples go around the world building these different Jesus communities. Some are called the general epistles. You'll see our general up there under the letters. There's another section called the prison epistles because they're written from prison. That's where we are today. A letter written from prison by Paul to a church in a city called Philippi, and it has such incredible application. You want to know how to be joyful? This book is going to say over and over how we can experience joy. You wonder, like, has God left the building? Is there any plan? It seems like my life's random. He who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. How is God and what is God doing in your life? It's going to teach us how to do all things without grumbling and complaining so that you can be a light that shines in this crooked and perverse generation. You ever been covered by shame but things you've done wrong? Paul says you can forget those things which are behind and press on toward that which you've already been attained in Jesus Christ. You're going to find forgiveness and a new identity and a new citizenship in heaven. You struggle with worry and anxiety? He's going to tell us that we can cast off worry and anxiety by meditating on the truths of this book, things that are praiseworthy and things that are noble, things that are true. And it will put in you a, a peace that surpasses understanding. He's going to teach us how we can learn, it doesn't come naturally, how do we learn to be content in all circumstances, rich, poor, abundance, and in need. What does it mean to live generously toward others the way God lived toward us? These are just a few of the themes he's going to speak to in this book. But as we dive into that today, I'm only going to do an overview of the entire book to give you like some breadcrumbs we're going to pick up over the next couple months to give you kind of a, a mental Rolodex of what Philippi is, where it was, and what are the themes that Paul is picking up here. So I'm going to begin by taking all of us on a little trip. We're going to go visit Philippi together, and I'm going to show you about the Greek, um, the Roman, and the Christian period in Philippi. So let me tell you a little bit about it. So uh, Philippi is near Greece or ancient Macedonia, and it's a little port city just off the port, and it began when a group of island people traveled here to set up a settlement. And they were being harassed. So they turned to King Philip II, a Macedonian king, and said, we need some help over here. And he's delighted to come in. And this is what Philippi looks like today. It became a major Greek, Macedonian, and eventually Roman city. With the theaters, with the whole bit. Now you may not recognize King Philip II by that name, but he was... Alexander the Great's father. And he had his son Alexander the Great personally coached by Aristotle, which is why though they are Macedonian, Alexander becomes the advocate for the Greeks. 
And so historians aren't sure, either Philip or Alexander renamed this place Philippi. You can see it engraved there even today in the ruins. Philippi, named after King Philip of Macedonia. Now, when Alexander takes over, it becomes a typical Hellenistic city celebrating the values of Greece, one of which involves a Heron. A Heron is like a temple that's built, not to the gods, but to the heroes of your culture. And a Greek describes a hero in the culture as someone who climbs up and elevates themselves in every situation. They demand their rights, they show they are powerful, they exalt themselves in order to get recognized. So they would create these places, these herons, where you would applaud or cheer for those who had exalted themselves. People like Hercules. Look at how he exalted himself, and when you exalt yourself, we give you praise and honor. It could be militarily, it could be in theater, it could be in battle, or it could even be in myth. People like Perseus. Oh, in myth, he destroyed the mighty Medusa, and because he exalted himself, we honor and celebrate and cheer him on as a hero. So the theater there, built during the time of Alexander the Great, is just an example of the crowds that would be gathered, what they would be cheering and celebrating for the actors who exalted themselves, for the, for the military conquests who exalted themselves, or even for those in the marketplace. This is the agora, or the forum, where you would do market um, exchanges, and each person would have their own booth. You can see them today. This is your booth, their booth, their booth for selling things in the marketplace. Then it moves us to the Roman period. This is Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar takes over this town, and he declares himself to be not only emperor, but he calls himself divine Julius, God on earth. He sets up Philippi as a settlement city, which means if you live in Philippi, it's as if you're in Rome. All the benefits of living in Rome, the tax benefits, the privilege benefits are the same in Philippi as they are in Rome. Now, when the Romans take over, they add a library, they add the Roman baths, and you'll see the prison traditional place of Paul we'll talk about in just a moment. Now, this city, you can always tell when a city's taken over, moved from the Greek period to the Roman period, because the Romans always put in these arches. That was one of their main developments as architecture, was these archways you'll see. Those are always Roman. So keep in mind, the Romans are in charge. Julius is declaring himself God on earth, the divine Julius. He says, I bring a gospel, that was the word they used, the good news of the Roma Paxa, the Roman peace, and peace in the gospel of good news for Rome comes through might. We're in charge, we battle, you do what we say. Well, Julius has a son, an adopted son, named Caesar Augustus. But the biggest battle occurs right in the backyard of Philippi in these plains. It's a battle for Western civilization. It happens between Julius Caesar on 42 BC. Brutus and Cassius are going to battle back there against Octavian and Mark Anthony. Will they have a republic? Or will Julius become an emperor? And will he declare himself God on earth? He wins and he does. So here in these ruins, Alexander the Great walked. Julius Caesar walked. And ultimately, Caesar Augustus walks. And as the son of divine Julius, he calls himself the son of God. And Julius Caesar brings a gospel and a peace as well. And Jesus will be born into the days of Caesar Augustus. And he will present himself as the true son of God, with the true gospel, with the true peace. Now Paul will come into this world 
When the Apostle Paul walks into Philippi, he's bringing a very counter-cultural message. Different son of God, different gospel, different king, different attitude. He'll come along this river that runs right near Philippi, and he'll meet some God-fearing women. That was a term given to Greek women, or Greek men or women, who were searching out the Hebrew God. Lydia, a seller of purple and her friends, meet right here by the river. You can be baptized there today in the same place where Paul meets them. And when Paul meets with them, they are immediately interested in a different type of God, a different type of gospel, the one true God who made us all. Now, they were very, very wealthy. And you can see the affluence of Philippi everywhere. The mosaics, the decorations, and even Lydia was a seller of purple, which was a a color that could only be bought by the royal family. So these folks had luxury, they had comfort, but they've never heard of a king or a god who doesn't exalt himself, he humbles himself to serve other people. And they're immediately interested. So this church community begins, but Paul also will end up in this prison here with Silas. And instead of complaining during their time, he will actually be praising God, and there'll be an earthquake. And the, the, the jailer will be so struck that he didn't leave and that he could praise God in these circumstances. The jailer and his family also become part of the church. So now we have this little community. You can see the ruins of the church community. They're still there today with this little bitty church community that Paul creates. Years later, he needs to write to them to encourage them to live for Christ in this city and in this place. Now at this point, he writes from probably Mamertime prison in Rome. I've been there before. You come in through that hole at the top, this dark, dingy place where Paul is writing to those in Philippi. God's using my suffering to advance the gospel. He'll use yours as well. And Philippi is filled not only with ruins of the original church, but basilicas all over the place where the church grew and grew and grew through time. And as Paul says in chapter 4, they financially help him build other churches across the world including this one in Philippi. It's called the Octagon. It's built about 400 A.D., a monstrous octagonal church that was used by God to advance the gospel of a brand new way of living and a brand new type of king. So that was our tour of uh, of Macedonia. And you can just see all the little pieces here that Paul's going to allude to when we come to the book. Now, what's the theme of the book? Because it speaks to all the countercultural ideas of Greek and Rome. The main idea of this book is it's all centered around a Christmas poem. That's why our series is called Christmas Year Round. He wants us to understand who Jesus is, what he did, and he wants that Christmas poem to become a Christmas pattern for living our lives. This Christmas hymn in the middle of the book. Paul says, I want this to be your mindset. I want this to be what you meditate on. I want this to be a pattern for living your everyday life. He says, brethren, join in following my example and note other people who follow my example. Make this your pattern. What's the pattern? Well, it's this Christmas poem in chapter 2. It goes like this. Let this mind, let this mindset, like this be the way you think, be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but rather he emptied himself. He, he did not consider it, he made himself, the Greek word there is to empty himself of his reputation, of his rights. He didn't demand. 
Instead, he took the form of a bondservant, and he came in the likeness of man. And being found in the appearance of man, he just continued to humble himself to serve other people wherever he went. In fact, he became obedient even to the point of the cross, death on a cross. And yet, God, seeing that, highly exalted this king. He gave him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those who are in heaven, those who are on earth, and those who died are under the earth. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God of heaven and earth. So this Christmas poem can kind of be summarized with a few images. And it goes like this. God, Jesus was God. He had the right to demand his rights, demand his reputation, demand that you give him whatever he needed to serve him. But instead he adapted himself to us. He came and he humbled himself to serve others. He even was willing to die to self, died for you and I to put our needs ahead of his own. And because of that, God exalted this hero, exalted this king through resurrection and sitting at the right hand of God. So we're going to look at how to center our lives around this poem, who he is and what he did, and how to rehearse that poem daily to empower us to love our coworkers, to deal with suffering in our life, to see suffering as a way of worshiping the way Jesus worshiped God for us. Let's begin with the first one. What does it mean to center your life on what Christ did in this Christmas poem? What if this was our mindset? It's not we come to an argument with our spouse and say, all right, she owes me, he owes me, I apologize last time, I've done five things, you've done four things, don't you realize how much I do around here? I know you guys don't think this way, but I occasionally think this way. Versus how can I serve How can I adapt? How can I help? How can I humble myself to do what needs to be done? How do we have the mindset by centering our life and what Christ did in this Christmas poem? We've got to change how we think about life and how we think about service and how we think about heroes. So remember I mentioned that they had a a, a Heron, right? They had a Heron here. And so the Heron, right there in the center kind of toward us, is in shambles. But the Heron is a way of celebrating heroes. And the hero is the mindset of your heroes becomes your mindset. Well, this is a different type of hero. He didn't exalt himself, he humbled himself. He found what he really needed, what he really wanted, what real victory comes from by doing the opposite of what the culture taught him. How do we come to a situation and say, how do I serve others here? My department, others' department, they're fighting against each other. How can we serve one another? That's the way and the mindset God's asking us to do. And so, as I mentioned earlier, at these Haruns, they would be celebrating the heroes of their day. And there were lots of them. It included Hercules, uh, Achilles, it could be uh, Odysseus. But one of the most profound moments in Philippi history came from King Philip himself. Let me tell you what happened. Even the Greeks had a certain level. They didn't mind if a mortal exalted himself and they would honor them. But you certainly don't think that you're equal to the gods. So King Philip II is at his daughter's wedding. At the end of the wedding, often you'd hire a sculptor to sculpt brand new sculptures of the gods. There's Zeus. There's Demeter. There's... What's the thing I went... Maker of wine. It'll come back to me. So you're celebrating the different gods. So all 12 gods come out. As they're coming out, a 13th statue is commissioned by King Philip II. 
And as the 13th statue comes out, he had a sculptor sculpt a sculpture of himself. His way of saying, I am equal to the gods. Even the Greeks and Macedonians were offended by this. However, he had told his guards to stay back because he has the favor of the gods and the favor of the Greeks. So he's totally unprotected to show people that he has power on high. He is God on earth. And one of his guards, seeing him unguarded, comes around at his own daughter's party and assassinates him right there. That a mortal would claim to be God and want to be exalted as a God. So this idea is just embedded in the thinking of, of the Philippians, knowing their history. That here is a king who tried to declare himself God, and it was offensive. But he so wanted to exalt himself as a hero, he wanted to even be higher than a hero. And Paul comes and says, no, the hero we're talking about is Jesus, who was the king of the universe. He is God himself, and yet he didn't demand or exalt himself but rather came to serve others. Reminds me of a missionary I heard about years ago. He was working in a, in a leper colony. And he just wasn't making much progress with telling people about the hope of the gospel, despite the leprosy and despite the, the mortality of it. Well, after working there for months, he contracted leprosy. And he gave his first sermon with his leprosy, and he began the service that day with these words. We lepers. And he said that began the beginning of God working and people responding and people hearing and people reaching out to God. Because he, the missionary from, uh, from far away, had become one of them. He knew the leprosy. He knew the pain. He knew the ostracization that was felt. In the same way, God became one of us. He became a leper among us to sympathize with us, to understand us, and to identify with us. He's the ultimate hero and the ultimate king. And that's why we need to center ourselves on this poem. But more than that, he goes on to speak about when you do that, you find out you have a different citizenship. And this plays into an idea as well. Because he gets to chapter 3, he's going to say, Hey, brethren, join me in following my example. This is a pattern for your life, this poem is. Notice those who walk according to the pattern, because we have this pattern. And one of the things he wants us to understand in, in seeing this pattern, is he wants us to know that we have a different citizenship. Our values come from a different ki kingdom, not from Rome, not from Greece. Our kingdom, our empire, our priorities come from the fact that we are now from or citizens of heaven. Now, a city that's obsessed with Roman citizenship, this would have struck them. And remember... They are a Roman colony, which means to live in Philippi, it's just as if you're in Rome. You had all the benefits in Philippi you would have in Rome. The tax benefits you'd get if you lived in Rome also applied here in Philippi. The privileges you had in Rome also applied if you're in Philippi. So that same idea, he says, you're living in Philippi in the Roman Empire, but you're really a citizen of heaven. So I want you to bring the priorities of heaven, the priorities of that kingdom here to Philippi. I want you to love like the kingdom of heaven. I want you to vote like the kingdom of heaven. I want you to serve like the kingdom of heaven. I want you to work toward the priorities of the kingdom of heaven. And they did. 
the Roman Empire gets turned upside down as they begin to teach people how to value the children in their life, how to cast them aside like they were doing in the Roman Empire, how to value the handicapped and the poor, eventually how to abolish slavery. People realized they had a different kingdom and they began to act here like they were from there. This is practical when it comes to forgiveness. Maybe you don't feel forgiven, right? Because you're still sinning. But because of what Christ did, you're forgiven fully there as a saint. So you can act now here like you are there. Fully forgiven, fully redeemed, fully adopted by God. So these are the themes going on here as he wants us to center ourselves on this poem. But more than that, he wants us to rehearse this Christmas poem every day of our life. Rehearse what Christ did for us. Keep rehearsing it until it becomes a pattern of how you think and how you prioritize and how you love and how you adapt to the people around you. Now to understand this, you have to see that Paul is typically, I mean, he's a lawyer mixed with a, with a pastor, so he's very verbose, and his sentences are very, very long. And in most of his books, it's like Roman numeral 1, A, B. Roman numeral 2, A, B. It's very, very systematized. But not so much in this book. This book he writes more like a musician, more like an artist. The entire book is constructed around this Christmas poem. And it's easier to see it than it is to talk about it. So let's take a moment and just see how he's organized the entire book centered on us rehearsing this Christmas poem. Let's watch. Paul has arranged a series of short reflective essays or vignettes and they all revolve around the center of gravity in this letter, which is a poem in chapter 2. So Paul opens the letter with a prayer of gratefulness, and he thanks God for the Philippians' generosity, for their faithfulness, and he expresses his confidence that the life-transforming work that God has begun in them will continue into greater and more beautiful expressions of faithfulness and love. And Paul then focuses on their obvious concern at the moment, which is his status in prison. Being in a Roman prison was no picnic, but it paradoxically has turned out for good to advance the good news about Jesus. So all of the Roman guards, the administrators, they all know that Paul's in prison for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And his imprisonment, it's inspired confidence in other Christians to talk about Jesus more openly. And Paul's optimistic that he will be released from prison, but it's possible that he could be executed. And as he reflects on it, that actually wouldn't be so bad. His life in the present and in the future, it's defined by the life and love of Jesus for him. And so if he's executed, that means he'll be present with Jesus, which would be great for him. And if he's released, well, that would mean he could keep working to start more Jesus communities, which would be better for other people. And so that's what he hopes for. Paul then turns to the Philippians and he urges them to participate in Jesus' example. He says, your life as citizens should be consistent with the good news about the Messiah. So these Christians in Philippi, they were living in a hotbed of Roman patriotism. But their way of life was to be shaped by another king, Jesus. And that might bring persecution. But they are not to be afraid because suffering for being associated with Jesus, it's a way of living out the story of Jesus himself. Which leads Paul into the great poem of chapter 2. So before becoming human, the Messiah pre-existed in a state of glory and equality with God. 
And unlike Adam, who tried to seize equality with God, the Messiah chose not to exploit his equal status for his self-advantage. Rather, he emptied himself of status. He allowed himself to be humiliated. He was obedient to the Father by going to his death on a Roman execution rack. But through God's power and grace, the Messiah's shameful death has been reversed through the resurrection. And now God has highly exalted Jesus as the King of all, that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that last statement is astounding. Paul's quoting from Isaiah chapter 45. It's a passage where all creation comes to recognize the God of Israel as Lord. We discover that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And so for Paul, this poem, it expresses his convictions about who Jesus is. It offers the example of Jesus as a way of life that his followers are to imitate. And so that's why Paul immediately goes on to tell two stories, first about Timothy, then about Epaphroditus. So Timothy's like Jesus because he's constantly concerned for the well-being of other people more than his own. And Epaphroditus, he ended up risking his life to serve Paul in prison. He got so sick he almost died trying to help Paul. Paul's point here is that these are the kinds of people who are living, breathing examples of the story of Jesus, and they are worthy of imitation. So those Christians who had been demanding circumcision of non-Jewish Christians, these people are still stirring up trouble for Paul, and they keep reminding him of his own past when he used to persecute Jesus' followers. But like Jesus, Paul has given up all of that status and privilege. He's given it all up to become a servant, like Jesus. So Paul says that for followers of Jesus, their true citizenship is in heaven. Heaven is the transcendent place where Jesus reigns as king. Paul then urges the Philippians not to give in to fear, but despite their persecution, to vent all of their emotion and their needs to God, who will give them peace. And that peace, Paul says, it comes by focusing your thoughts on what is good and true and lovely. There's always something that you could complain about, but a follower of Jesus knows that all of life is a gift and can choose to see beauty and grace in any life circumstance. Which leads Paul to his conclusion. He again thanks the Philippians for their sacrificial gift, and he wants them to know that his imprisonments, that his times of poverty, that these are not true hardships for him. They've actually become his greatest teachers. Paul has come to see his own suffering as a participation in the story of Jesus. So isn't that interesting that the entire book is actually chronologically built around that poem? So you'll see as you go through the book that each section he writes is like a little Christmas card that further explains how to think about the mindset of that Christmas poem. So for example, each week we'll open up a section of Philippians. We'll tell you, he says, you're a saint. He calls them saints because of what Jesus did. You are a saint. You are fully forgiven by God. And then he'll say, guess what? We need to adapt. We need to adapt to others because what? Jesus adapted to us by becoming a man. Other times he'll say, we need to serve others because God served us. Each of these Christmas cards, sections of Philippians, will support the different ideas that he has in his Christmas poem. And he wants us to rehearse that poem and rehearse that mindset through our life so that we can live it out ourselves in our culture and our time. He brings us up all through the book, this mindset of rehearsing he wants us to have. Begins in chapter 1. 
I want you to stand fast, whatever you're facing, with one spirit and one mindset. Because you've got confidence in the gospel. That God uses the bad to accomplish the good. Because God forgave you, you can forgive others. You're worn out taking care of your kids or dealing with your family with their unrealistic demands. God could have been worn out by you, but he wasn't. He kept adapting to you and kept serving you. So whatever you're facing, you need to have the mindset of the gospel. It says in chapter 2, guys, don't just become a Christian and get to heaven. I want you to have this mindset that was also in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 15. You want to know how to mature, how to grow as a Christian? You need to have this mindset. The mindset of this poem that you will do unto others because you're so enamored that the king of the universe did this for you. You struggle with worry and anxiety? If there's anything praiseworthy, meditate, which means to rehearse, to ruminate, to reflect on, and to think about these things. The things God did for you, and that will fill you up to want to do it for others. Not because they deserve it more, not because they're not annoying, but because God did it for you. I was talking to a buddy this week. He had a friend who really struggled with anxiety and worry. Very successful business, very big territory, but just anxiety began to take over his life. To the point at which he'd have to pull over his car several times a week and call his wife to come and pick him up because of the, the anxiety and panic he was having. Well, he wasn't a follower of Jesus, but he got connected to a couple folks in our church who were followers of Jesus. And they began to just chat with him, do some Bible studies with him. And, and he was enjoying it, but he really wasn't picking much of it up. But he liked the camaraderie and the conversation. So they were going to go to a conference, but it was a pretty hardcore Bible conference. They didn't think maybe he was ready for it. And yet last minute, one of their other friends uh, couldn't come. He got sick. So they invited this buddy who had the anxiety to see if he wanted to come to the conference. And he said he did. So they were at a hotel before the conference began. And he was reading a book they gave him called The Man in the Mirror. It's about how God has a purpose for your life, how to look in the mirror and see what God wants you to become. He was reading it. He got about six chapters in. Went to the bathroom, came back. At the end of chapter six, it said something like, if you've been reading this book and don't really understand what I've been saying, it could be because you're not a follower of Jesus and you need his spirit to help you understand these truths. Now would be a great time to stop reading the book, ask God to be your forgiver, invite him into your life, and ask his spirit to guide and direct you. Well, sure enough, unbeknownst to anyone else, that's exactly what this guy did. He began to sense that there's a king of the universe who controls things, and it's not him. There's a king of the universe who offers to forgive him. He doesn't need to save himself through his own works or his own whatever. When no one knows this, he ends up coming to the conference, and everybody immediately notices that he's a little happier to be around. He's a little less anxious. You've been around anxious people. You get anxious because they're anxious. They're just enjoying his presence more. So they go out to dinner after the conference, and they're like, he starts talking about the message in a, in a really dynamic way, and they say, hey, what's going on with you today? Are you having a good day or whatever? He, and he said, I don't know, I prayed this prayer, and I just have this sense that maybe God loves me and God's in me, and, and he's in control. And it's now been, I think, 20 years. I'm not saying this is prescriptive for everybody. He's never had any of those anxious anxiety attacks that he had. And he would say, especially a couple years later when his wife was in a terrible accident, and she needs 24-7, one-on-one care for the rest of her life. Talk about something that will give you anxiety. 
He said, I think God was preparing me to deal with my own anxiety, understand what he did for me, because now as I look at my marriage, I don't see it as something that I'm overwhelmed with, though it's overwhelming. I see it as an opportunity for me to adapt to her, to humble myself, and to serve her the way Jesus served me. See, that's not just a prayer to get to heaven. That's a mindset for life. And that's what Paul wants for you and he wants for me. When we're in an argument, when we're in a discussion, when we're worn out, when we're wore down, we come back to this mindset. So here's my challenge for us as a community together for the next few months together. I would like you to try with me, I'm going to try as well, to develop an eight-minute M&M mindset between now and Christmas. So eight minutes, M&M, I want you to try and memorize this Christmas poem. It's eight verses. Start at verse 4, go through verse 11. It starts with, look out not only for your own interest, but also the interest of others. And let this mindset be in you that's also of Christ Jesus, who do not consider it robbery with God to be equal with God, but rather humbled himself. I'm starting. Why do I say eight minutes? If every day you take eight minutes, memorize a little bit of the scripture, but just do one verse at a time, because then I want you to meditate on it, ruminate on it. Maybe start at the first verse. God, I've memorized, look out not only for your own interest. God, there's nothing wrong with me looking out for my own interests in my marriage or my company or my department. But Father, where am I only looking out for my own interests? You're telling me to look out not only for my own interests, but also the interest of others. The bigger deal, the bigger mission, the bigger department, the bigger goal. Ask God to convict you where you might be only looking out for your own interest. Ask God to challenge you in ways you could look and serve people in the situation you're so annoyed by or frustrated by. Eight verses between now and Christmas. And I'd like you to try eight minutes. And there's a reason for eight minutes. Eight minutes of memorizing and meditating. That's the M&M mindset on who Jesus is, what he did for you, and what would it look like for you to adapt, die to self, live like a different type of hero in your life as well. So maybe each time you get together, you're just going to grab one verse. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Maybe you go another verse. Let this mindset be in you. God, is this my mindset? Is this how I'm thinking about my marriage right now? How would this mindset change the fight that I keep having with my spouse? You're just going to memorize through that verse at a time between now and Christmas and spend eight minutes. Now, why eight minutes going through this poem together? Well, research has shown that if you will take a moment, close your eyes and meditate, do the things Paul talked about, think about things that are pure and holy and lovely of good rapport, you'll actually reduce the anxiety of your brain itself. I've read this for years. I thought, I wonder if this is really true or just like something they say. I don't have any actual evidence I was close to. So I called up my, my friend uh, Jeremy and Carol and I said, hey, I know you guys work with brain scans. Could you show me if this really works? Does it really work to meditate? So they did a meditation and the research shows that at eight minutes, you can start calming yourself down from all the anxiety. What email? What check? What do I do? Where do I need to go? What did I forget? That just our brain is around all the time. So Carol sent me the brain scanner. Jeremy did. It just shows that your brain is very, very busy most of the time. That's the one there on the, your left, my right. 
You'll just see your brain thinking about stuff. Sometimes your anxiety, you got fight or flight going on. You know, what do I need to fight? What battles need to go? Where do I need to get away from that? Who's, who am I under attack? Just the everyday activity of living in life. But after 10 minutes, psychologists say at least eight, the alpha waves that result in mindfulness and stresslessness and focus and healing to your brain begin to go up. You can see the cooling of the activity. You can see the calming of the brain. Two minutes and then your phone rings. Two minutes and then you do something. No, no. Eyes closed. The research shows eyes closed. It just lets your brain settle for a moment. Not take in all the other things. And allow yourself to meditate and ruminate on the truths of God. I'm not in control of the world. That's where my anxiety is coming from. God, you're in control. You are even in control when there's a Roman cross. And if you can make something good out of that, can you take what's going on in my life and make something good out of that? Like I was talking to Carol about what was going on during the brain scans. She said she felt the Holy Spirit was directing her with colors. She said it doesn't happen very often, but when she had her eyes closed, it would be a color. It felt like the Holy Spirit was telling her to pray this way. Then another color to pray maybe this way with this mood. And all through the time of prayer, she could feel these colors. Now, it's not how God directs me, but it was neat how God directed her. When I got all done, they looked at the brain scan and the section of the brain that's related to your visual cortex. You know, your eyes see stuff and the colors turn out your brain. With her eyes closed and the Holy Spirit leading her, you could see that part of her brain firing as the color cortex was moving in her life as God was leading her. So there's research to support what the Bible's been saying for 2,000 years. Eight minutes, every day if you can, at least a couple times a day. Memorize and meditate on this poem, that it would empower you to suffer well, that it would empower you to live joyfully whatever you're facing. It would empower you to be generous, empower you to adapt, uh, and remind you that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, remind you that you are a citizen of heaven that is fully forgiven. You are a saint, not when you get to heaven, you're a saint now if you're a follower of Jesus. You serve a different king. I'm going to invite the band to come out because I want us to meditate together as we end the service today. And one of the ways you meditate or rehearse or ruminate on something is sing it over and over again. And we're going to sing about a king. Not a king that exalted himself and demanded everybody else, but a king who came and should have, could have, would have demanded his own reputation, his own worship. But instead, a king that chose to adapt to you, adapt to me, adapt to your needs and adapt to my needs. What kind of a king is this? It's a king beyond our imagination. Yet the king we always wanted and the king we always needed. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're an incredible king who did an incredible thing by becoming one of us, dying for us. And Father, we exalt you now as we will for eternity, for every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord and king. In Jesus' name. Amen.